Welcome to season two of the Warriors of Education podcast, bringing you heartwarming and real conversations with teachers on the front line of education across the globe. I'm Karen Sarah Watson. I'm not only the host, but I am a teacher. This podcast is for people who want to better understand the experience of today's teachers. Come join us. Welcome to the Warriors of Education podcast. Today, I'm thrilled to have on Dr. Caliris Salas Ramirez. She's from the CUNY School of Medicine, and she's a distinguished medical lecturer. She is an organizer, a mom, and an activist fighting for the equity in public education. Dr. Dr. Ramirez, thank you so much for coming on. I'll call you Caliris. Um, so tell me just a little bit about your work that you do, and um, and then we want to get into some of your, your activism work. So I get paid <laughs> to train medical students. Um, I'm a neuroscientist by training, and so I teach neuroscience um, to medical students, and I also have a, have a research lab um, that focuses on addiction, interventions for addiction, and we specifically look at sex differences um, and how drugs can impact the brain during different stages of development, and then kind of break the brain, <laughs> like change behaviors, and then try to fix it. Um, so we look at these interventions to help restore cognitive function. Wow. So a, you're, you're my first neuroscience scientist, so I'm thrilled. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gives me it gives me this window, right? This different perspective on looking at education, and so education and education activism um, is my passion. Uh, I I fight for equity. Um, I'm also Puerto Rican, born, raised, and educated on the island. Um, came to the States for grad school um, and kind of stayed here. Um, and so like I knew nothing about the public education system um, or how it worked here in the United States. Um, and then being a native New Yorker, not a native New Yorker, but being in New York and having children that are native New Yorkers, um, learning about being in the most segregated education system in the whole country. Seriously. Um, yeah, big, 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 um, let's see, the work started first in like myself, just looking at myself and thinking about, you know, I'm a woman, a woman of color that comes from a colony that has been sold this American dream. And then having the bubble legit burst <laughs> once you have a black son going into a system that doesn't see him as humanely as I do as his mom. Um, and so it literally was, I started my activism work literally as he began his educational experience here in New York City. Um, when I moved him out of a daycare system um, that the daycare was Afrocentric um, and I moved him into the public school system in pre-K uh, I just, I saw the stark differences in how teachers engaged him in terms of the conversations we were having. I was lucky enough to have him um, enroll in Central Park East One Elementary School in East Harlem, which is the oldest public progressive school founded by Deborah Meyer. Um, and fortunately, you know, his um, teachers were all of color. Um, and I definitely, you know, I was really happy and felt safe there. Um, but within two months of us being there, 
I learned um, that the principal was trying to change that progressive school that had existed for 40 plus years. Um, we had a new principal who was who firmly believed that progressive education uh, was not a space for black, brown, and poor children. Um, she thought that uh, black, brown, and poor children um, needed to be in more authoritarian environments um, and was very committed to test prep. <laughs> very committed. Not unusual. It's actually most principals in New York yeah. City are very committed to test prep. Yeah. Um, standardized testing was like her thing. She created a tutorial program for kids that she felt were falling behind. Um, and a lot of people would say like, well, she would, she's doing the right thing, but in a school that values progressive education and knows that progressive education still works um, and students are absolutely capable of performing in any sort of assessment um, that is provided for them, even standardized tests. Um, we know that there's, you know, in, in our school community, we're very committed to like, this is not what we need to invest our resources in. Um, and so that along with several other things, the removal of teachers, the targeting of teachers in the school um, and wanting to change the pedagogical practices started the, a movement <laughs> um, where we spent 18 months trying to get this principle out of our progressive elementary school. Um, and we did everything from having petitions and sending emails to the chancellor and to our superintendent to occupying the school, um, doing an attendance strike, having a 400 person rally um, downtown, bird dogging the mayor, um, you know, the list goes on and on. <laughs> Again, it took us wow. 18 months. Yeah. Um, but that that journey of one having a community that was completely committed to progressive education to progressive parenting gentle parenting um to really thinking and advocating for the whole child um a school that is integrated right like an integrated school in east harlem is a rare occurrence um it's a rare occurrence across the city as i mentioned um, but to value and to not be scared of having those really difficult conversations about how race plays into education, that completely transformed my perspective and just motivated me to engage it with the community at large in terms of really changing the education system here in New York City um, and elevating the voices of our most marginalized population. So currently, you know, I serve as a parent leader, um, not just in my son's school, but also I'm the president of the Community Education Council um, and part of several advocacy groups like New York City Opt Out, <laughs> telling parents they don't have to take state tests. Right. Um, parents for Responsive, Equitable, Safe Schools. Uh, which is really focused on the response around COVID and the pandemic and how we need to reimagine education. Uh, I'm part of Black Lives Matter at schools um, to really think about how we can use the 13 principles of the Black Lives Matter movement in terms of developing curriculum and engaging families. Um, I'm also part of New Yorkers for Racially Just Public Schools um, that have recently engaged in this crazy electoral season um, 
but we created a platform collectively um, that we presented to several city council as well as mayoral candidates and thinking about how to create a more equitable system for students here in New York City. So the work never ends. I mean, I don't even know how you have time to eat breakfast. <laughs> Always have something going on. I can promise you that. <laughs> I mean, that's amazing. So, um, tell me some of the. So, tell me how where this led to. So, all of this work with this principal. What what was the final outcome that happened at that school? I'm just curious. That first. May fifteenth, twenty seventeen. Happiest day of my life. Our second teacher that had been removed from, or our second teacher that had been removed from the school was exonerated and was coming back to our school. The principal was still there. And about an hour into welcoming her, having signs, calling the press, um, we got called in by one of the superintendents in the Department of Education to tell us that the principal had been removed from the school and that we were going to have we were not just we were taken away from the superintendent of the district for several months so that we can engage in the process of selecting the new principal um, for our school and just rebuilding for a little bit taking a break from like the bureaucracy unfortunately we were given back <laughs> to our former superintendent um but at that moment, I knew there could be a win, that it was going to be hard, that it was a lot of work, but that it was possible. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's so good to hear these success stories with the activists. I've interviewed a lot of activists. You're, I think you're my first, I, I've had moms on the on the podcast, but I haven't actually had parent activists on the podcast. And I love hearing that. I love that the, that you are getting involved as, as a mom and you are in, in, in amidst like you doing your your whole business, you know, doing your whole uh, teaching on the side. It's amazing all the work that you're doing. Um, so, so I'm curious about where um, where your son is in the system now. So, what where is this led to? Now we've gone through COVID, and you know, where are your children in all this? Yeah. So he's still in. So my son. Um, went back to school in person in February, no, big first week of March, um, after I was vaccinated. Um, I have a nine-year-old and I have a 22-month-old. Um, so it was really like, and I was still remote at work and I thought for a while, and I did, I was managing um, with the boys. But then I got really busy at work and knee deep in campaign, electoral process voting rights, et cetera. Um, and he, my oldest, took it as an opportunity to disengage. <laughs> it was like, not doing this anymore. Yeah. Um, and um, I made the decision to send him back to school. Um, even though I do believe it was parent a parent choice and completely like have pushed the Department of Education to provide resources for parents that don't feel like their children are safe in school buildings. Um, but he went back to school. Um, we finished out the, we survived fourth grade. Um, and so he will be moving on to fifth grade and which is his last year in this elementary school. So um, it's a little bittersweet and I'm, and I'm praying that my oldest will get <laughs> into the same school um, when he goes into the system um, for pre-K. So um, how do you feel like the DOE handled the pandemic? Oh, they were crashed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Go ahead. Um, 
it, it was it was horrible it was really really bad um I, I, you know hindsight is 2020 um at that moment i was very angry at de blasio and at carranza who was our current chancellor um during the pandemic um i do think de blasio uh should take the brunt of the blame um and de blasio is a bully <laughs> and if he doesn't get his way he has um the ability to literally destroy another human being um and we were seeing that in real time with um with carranza um i think he was somebody that um his voice was taken away from him in the process um you know it was really sad to see both a governor and a mayor that did not engage school communities in a holistic way to figure out what it was that they needed uh, you know i mean one of the things that just amazed me was that there was not one teacher on that committee um you know he got a bunch of corporate people to be on his committee and no one no one asked the teachers and nope. We were on the front line. We were right. I I I was in school since September, so it's I I just you know I I didn't I, I mean I had remote some remote in school, but we had to be there since September oh. when the craziest craziness started. But um, there is such a lack of respect for teachers. I mean, yeah. which is why I do this podcast too because yeah. I'm just so tired of it. Um, uh, I just have to tell you this slight story, and then I want to talk about more because at our graduation, one of the councilmen in my area, councilwomen came and spoke and she wanted, she acknowledged the parents, she acknowledged the administration, she acknowledged the community, and she did not mention one teacher, not one teacher for helping us through this year. And it was, I, I just was, and this was like, this was a councilwoman coming to a school and, and, and saying what an amazing administration you have and what amazing parents you have. And there was no acknowledgement for the teacher. So I just want to share that with you. But um, so, yes, it was it was a, a, a total disaster. Yeah. And then to make it all you know, icing on the cake, we have this group of like affluent white moms that started this like keep New York City schools open group, yeah. um, you know, where they're like, oh, I want to warehouse my kid. And it's like, I, or complaining that, oh, what the school day ends up too? I want my hour back. And it's just like, are you fucking for real? Yeah, um, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> Like, are you for real when, and, but, but you're, and you're still working at home. Like either right. you're not working or you're working at home. Right. Fine. Meanwhile, I have a school community that 63% of parents were remote the whole year. It didn't change. Like people came in and out, but that, that barely fluctuated, um, in, in our district. Um, and you know, I have families that don't have health insurance. There are families that were scared of ice um, and all these issues were coming up in our school community. Meanwhile, these women are like unions are horrible. Teachers are horrible. They don't want to work. Blah, blah. And I'm like, the, these teachers are going into a school building that is not well ventilated, you know, in the in the middle of a pandemic to teach 
to be with your child. It was, it was exhausting listening to these parents on the news. I was exhausted just listening to these parents complain that the teachers don't want to come back. The teachers don't want to come back. They don't want to come back. Not even acknowledging that people had health risks, not even acknowledging that, you know, we, we already know, like we already know this was not the best year because of remote learning, but yes, that group of white parents, um, under de Blasio, you know, was a gigantic issue. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because. Horrible. Horrible. And I, I hear they actually May Day, they had a rally in East Harlem um, where, the, and they brought Andrew Yang and Catherine Garcia to East Harlem, did not engage anybody in the community, basically demanding for the loosening up of restrictions for all children to go back to school buildings, no social distancing, no masks, no masks. No mask. They, they had a child with a sign that said, vaccines work, why don't you? And I wanted to vomit. So I hear, I hear that these moms, that it took them two months to organize this rally. I found out about it a couple days before it happened and it took me four days to have 60 people show up for a counter rally. I took their lineup apart. They were bringing in this woman, Maud Marin, who is part of PLACE, um, which is parent leaders for accelerated learning and whatever, um, who was running for city council in district one, who is a known racist and PLACE is a modern segregationist group. Um, she was gonna speak. There was a candidate for city council um, that here in District 9 in Central Harlem that was going to speak, I spoke to him and I was like, you do not want to be in this mess. Um, and he pulled out. So they literally just had Yang and Garcia come for a photo op because they were going into a field with one of, with a um, nonprofit that has a, a football league for our kids here in Harlem. Um, and so Yang ran, ran, ran around the field, throwing the football with some kids. Um, the parents that were there, they was literally, they were literally brought in in the middle of a practice. The parents that were there had no idea what was happening. The majority of them were remote. And there were people coming in like, oh, we demand five days of instruction, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, in East Harlem, all of our schools are doing five day instruction. Why? Because 64 of our parents are home and they're choosing to be home and they've made an informed decision to be home and you know who is teaching your kids these teachers they were so mad so angry they were very mad that i called them white supremacists more than once um but that's literally what you're doing you're coming in to a community that's predominantly black and brown not asking one person not thinking about what the community needs. So you, you wanna come into East Harlem and talk about vaccines? Do you know which neighborhood has not had access to vaccines? Do you know which neighborhood had the highest COVID rates in all of Manhattan in April? I, there are students in my district that have lost at least a dozen family members. I have students coming to CEC meetings and talking to principals and like, no, we're not doing this. Right. And so 
that's that's where it's gone <laughs> this year and so yeah de blasio created uh i i and i also blame that on him like he literally there's part of me i have a conspiracy theory there's part of me that firmly believes that he put these people these women onto this um and i think it's i think they've gotten so much press coverage because i think city hall intentionally elevates them um and i think it's absolutely intentional and planned um because this is what he wants he wants to leave his term being known as the mayor who opened the largest school system in the country that's what he like that's because he's got nothing else to go on right so where does where does this lead us all for the fall like where where are we now and <laughs> and what and what can we do so i think we need to continue to engage in these conversations and push um the department of education uh to recognize that teachers and parents have a voice and they have concerns. So for example, his announcement where he was like, absolutely, there's no remote learning option for next fall. I think that's unacceptable. We still have families um, that are just not ready to go into school. Though. Especially in immigrant communities, especially. Absolutely. Yeah. Very and, and them losing, them, them tightening up the medical accommodations um, with the union um, for teachers. I think that's unacceptable as well. I mean, you have, you know, teachers that are pregnant. Oh, that was the other thing. Oh my God, the keep schools open moms were like, I can't believe teachers are getting medical accommodations for being pregnant. Uh, do you know <laughs> that if you are pregnant and not vaccinated, you're 25 times more likely to die from COVID? Like, yeah. this is no joke, boo-boo. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's just out of your spirit. You're awesome. <laughs> um, so it's just we just the all all of these things like we are still here and and now we're learning that there's another variant that can can you know cause even more havoc. We're we're not sure. We're just not sure. We don't know enough. The science is not there to support um, any decisions that are made hastily. And that's the other thing that really really upsets me. They've elevated folks that are not scientists, that are not epidemiologists to push these angles of like, schools are safe, everything's <laughs> reopening. You know, I've, I even asked Jay Varma at one point, we were in a hearing together and I was like, are you sure you took an oath? Because I have a feeling <laughs> that you are not upholding your oath as a physician. Um, and there's no racial analysis. It's like, oh yeah, schools open, everything's fine. We don't have to do this. I'm like, do you know what black and brown people have lived through the last year and a half? Like, do you know that that one in five black children have lost a parent to COVID? Like, that's where we're at. Um, and nobody wants to have that conversation. Um, and, and, you know, we talk about wanting to have a more diverse teaching workforce but black teachers are not going to come into schools if this is how you're treating the yeah. workforce yeah. um and so yeah we need to continue to push this conversation i think there's a group of parent leaders in the bronx that's that's really really pushing um to ensure that families do have a remote option and i think we need to continue to work with them and i've had the pleasure um to collaborate with them and, and push this issue forward um, and I think we need to continue to stay visible. I mean, I, I know in the sum last summer, I was in several protests and actions 
um, basically voicing the, the uh, um, concerns that we as parents and teachers had. Um, and I think some of those are still present and we can't ignore um, that these are our experiences and these are the things that need to be taken care of. The other thing is this budget. <laughs> right now, city council is discussing a budget um, that, can, that, that is where we're gonna spend $500 million on test prep where we're gonna spend $50 million putting police in schools. When I we need- I'm so scared about that. I mean, that is, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, by the time this pod comes, comes out, we'll know who the mayor is gonna be, but um, I just, yeah, I'm very nervous about that, about what's gonna happen with policing and schools. It's like, um, that's a whole other conversation. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, so let me ask you, because um, you have this on your um, in your bio, um, how do you use your platform as a neuroscientist to yeah. to support um, to, in a mother to support uh, anti oppressive uh, sorry anti oppressive work and changing systems? Yeah. So you know, one of the things that first of all, if you have a PhD in neuroscience, a lot of people listen to you. <laughs> They're like, "What? You're a neuroscientist?" You know, and it's interesting, like you kind of, I try to navigate these spaces um, in, a, in a very, like, I don't like throwing my title around. I don't like, especially if I'm in an organizing space, I'm Caliris. I'm a parent, I'm a mom, I'm Seba and, and Lore's mom, and that's just who I am. Um, when, you know, when I'm meeting some folks that need to have a title thrown around, okay. <laughs> um, and there's some folks that with that title, again, you have the opportunity to engage in different kinds of conversations. So whether it's an elected official, somebody in the Department of Education, uh, other scientists and physicians that are making claims, um, whether it's a white parent that's like, yes, GNT is the way to go. And specialized high schools are the most amazing high schools. And I'm like, oh, do you know I have students from those specialized high schools that have a hell of a hard time in medical school. Um, <laughs> so, you know, all of these, like, it's like the worlds are colliding in different ways. And I have the opportunity as a scientist, as a mom, as an educator to tackle them through different angles. Um, it definitely provides me an opportunity um, to be in lots of different spaces um, where I can speak to that process, um, right? So if we're talking about racism and we're talking, like I know how the brain integrates that information um, and how, that, how we have a hard time um, doing away with some of those biases because we're not actively countering a lot of the cognitive schemas and a lot of the things that we've learned throughout our life. Um, so also using science to explain phenomena that folks are like, that doesn't exist, or I'm not racist. <laughs> um, I can provide them with the empirical evidence um, of why those, those things exist. And so I'm able to have some pretty complex conversations in the same way that I'm like, again, a total, folks are like, you're pretty normal for being a neuroscientist. I can have a completely like throw down. This is what we do. Let's just have some food and talk about the shit that's going down in our school. And you can swear too as a neuroscience. I'm just letting people know that that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, that's great. I mean, there's a whole, that's a whole other conversation that's been so hard to get into, which is which has been these elitist schools 
And I know we're not going to get into it now, because, but, um, but, you know, I'm glad you brought that up. And I hope that, you know, I hope more parents do get involved the way you've been getting involved in this. Um, there, I'm a little, I'm nervous. I'm going to be honest with you. I'm very nervous for this coming school year. Um, we're going back to like 32 kids in the classroom again. And, um, it, it doesn't feel safe. Um, I'm in an elementary school. That means a lot of kids aren't even vaccinated. And yet we're going back into this space again. And so who is, who's really looking out for the teachers who are right on the, on the front line and, and therefore looking out for the students and not quite sure the students' best interests are in mind in this. I don't feel that way. And after talking to you, I, you know, I, I feel that's, those are some of the things that you're working towards. Yeah. I mean, we're definitely at a conversation yesterday uh, with a reporter and he was like, you know, what do you think? And I was like, look, in the fall, I think we have to slowly ease into this. Like, I don't think anybody should be like hyper-focused because everybody's like, learning loss. Oh my God, these kids. And I'm like, chill. <laughs> um, we need some time to like reintegrate. Like it is literally an unknown transition we need some time to figure out, you know, what's the best spaces and what, what I am also fearful. So a couple months ago when they lifted, for example, the social distancing restrictions um, to three feet and not six feet, and at the same time eliminated the two case rule, I was flying off the walls. I was like, what is happening? Because again, as a scientist, when you limit, when you are, have such a, um, structured and controlled environment and then you change all of these variables if things go wrong if god forbids like many people had would have died or gotten infected at that point it would have been huge and we wouldn't have known whether it's eliminating the two case rule or whether it's decreasing the social distancing so now we're gonna go again in the fall into schools Hopefully there will be vaccine access. Hopefully shortly after we start schools, we will be able to administer vaccines um, to six to 12 year olds, hopefully, but we're not hundred percent sure of that. And so we once again, start talking and talking about um, a delayed phased in reopening, right? What would that look like? Um, and who do we need to prioritize? Cause that was the other thing this year nobody was prioritized no like there was it was like oh let's just get them in there like de blasio just wanted kids in buildings um and there was no thought process in terms of who was going to be left without resources what was it that they need i promise you the folks in district two um you know their kids all had computers in september they started they were able to log on the students, my students in District 4, it wasn't until February that all of um, the requests for devices were um, were honored by the Department of Education. So there were students that the first semester had zero access. Yeah, well, you have a lot of work to do. <laughs> you can't take a break. <laughs> and none of us can. Um, 
Thank you so much for sharing um, what you have with us and the work that you are doing is incredible. And I, I just, you're so powerful. You're, you're a doctor, a neuroscientist, you are an activist, you are a mom, you are like the power woman we all need. And so I am honored that uh, you took the time and your very busy schedule to speak to us. And I will, um, I'll post any, any links that if people want to get involved, uh, or learn more about you. We'll, we'll post that on the, um, when we release the podcast, but Clarice, okay. thank you so much for being part of the Warriors of Education podcast. Can I just say one more thing? Yeah, absolutely. If it, if it weren't because I started this work in collaboration and in partnership with teachers, there's like, I, I, we can't move. We won't, will not be able to move the needle until we all work collectively towards one goal. So this whole thing that the media has done and that these white moms have done in this last year to, to tear apart those relationships. You know, I always talk about the fact that um, as a single mom, my, the, my son's teachers sometimes know him better than I do, know his responses better than I do. Um, and I go to them as my co-parent. Uh, and so being able to engage in this work with teachers, with educators, um, being on the CEC and having an opportunity to just talk to principals in an honest and genuine way, talk to school leaders about how to move the equity work forward. Like until we do this collectively, we're not gonna we're not gonna move anything. And so I think that partnership is central. And I just you know I just hope that that we that as I continue to do this work, we continue to embody that. I will say the more caucus of the UFT, like I will slip my rest for any. <laughs> those teachers any day I have a lot of more um, people on here yeah, that is my um and you know I've 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 talked to the other folks in other caucuses I would just say my values are much more aligned with the more caucus um but you know teachers are a treasure uh and what they've done this these last this last year and a half what you've done this last year and a half it's miraculous and it's and it's been selfless um and and you're dedicated i mean you were literally thrown in the trenches of doing remote learning for little people like i did it but i did it for grown-ups <laughs> like i did it for folks that already have a well-developed frontal lobe <laughs> um and have the ability to navigate that space but the fact that there were teachers you know are four-year-olds four-year-olds are having pre-k remotely uh, and, still doing work. Um, and so I think we have to remember that without that partnership um, without those relationships um, we're not going to be able to move the work forward and that has to be central right thank you so much that is so important and you said it beautifully <laughs> thank you again for being part of warriors thank you Thanks for tuning in to Warriors of Education. This podcast is produced by me, Karen Sarah Watson, edited by Alitza Renzi, and recorded in Brooklyn, New York. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you download podcasts. If you are a teacher or know a teacher who would like to share a story, contact us at warriorsofeducation at gmail.com or on our website, warriorsofeducation.com. Teachers, we hear you, we see you, we honor you. Thank you.